You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you, Ryan. Good evening. Good to see you. Welcome to Mercy View. Uh, My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and if you're visiting us tonight on this uh, family Christmas service, we are so glad that you're here. I am uh, just so thrilled that you've chosen to come and hang out with us. Uh, We hope that tonight has been an encouragement so far, will continue to be so. If you're in town for the holidays, we we pray that you have a blessed time with family and uh, with friends. I want to mention one more thing before we jump into our passage this evening. Um... Uh, one of the things that uh, is just a reality for us in this time that we find ourselves in is uh, some of what we need to try to do to make meaningful connections with people and have meaningful experiences with people is to do them virtually. And uh, we have decided this year to uh, put together a virtual Christmas Eve g- a gathering service for you to uh, participate um, on, uh, on Christmas Eve this week. And so if you remember back um, in the spring, um, we did this with our Good Friday service, and it was uh, uh, just an awesome thing that uh, a lot of you contributed to, participated in, and we presented it that evening, and we had probably one of the highest numbers of views that we've ever had on, on something online for us. And so we just felt like this would be a great way to serve you. I'm not going to ask you to get out again on that evening, but uh, if you would have time, carve out a little bit of time. Um, we are doing that at 6 p.m. Christmas Eve. It'll be about an hour, and you're going to have an opportunity to worship with uh, whomever you may be with. We're going to uh, hear from the Word. There's actually a special moment for your kiddos um, if you have kids for that, but I uh, want to ask you to be a part of that. It's going to be broadcast live at 6 p.m. Uh, this Christmas Eve. Please join us for that. Well, about a week ago, you remember, uh, if you were to look outside, we were in a winter wonderland, right? We had the most snow I heard that we've had in about seven years here in Tulsa. It was an awesome, well, I'll, I say it's awesome. Some of you may not like snow, but uh, it was awesome. I'm a kid at heart. I love to see the snow. One of the things that has happened um, in our home during these months of being uh, at home a lot, during the, the just COVID protocols and things, is uh, we had to learn really quickly that we, we had to make our own lattes. And so uh, I, we remembered a conversation that we had uh, with a, a sister-in-law. She said, you've got to buy this little thing. It's called a mocha pot. And you put your coffee grinds in, or grounds in it, and you put the water in it, and it's all scientific, and it percolates out, and, and it turns this, you know, coffee into this beautiful espresso, and then you can use that for whatever you want to do. And so over the course of these months, we have mastered the art of frou-frou vanilla lattes at home. Now, uh, the, the reason I bring up last Sunday is because we all were getting ready to uh, make our lattes, and we realized we had run out of coffee, well, this, the roads were pretty rough, but I thought I would be so bold as to go out to the closest place that I could go and find some coffee for us so we could make some, some of our, our lattes. The closest place to us uh, is a place called Cafe Cubana. Cafe Cubana used to be a, a place up on Cherry Street for many, many years. They moved down kind of in the middle of the city, really close to us. And so I thought, okay, I can at least probably brave the five minutes or so it takes to go there, get the coffee grounds, 
Come back and we can have uh, our, our coffees. Well, um, I get to the, they have a drive-through. I get to the normal spot that they, they, they have where you can pull up and order whatever. So go up to the, the drive-through and tell them, hey, I need some ground coffee. Sure, pull around. And as I, that's on the south side of this small plaza. As I pull around uh, to go to where you pick up this coffee, there's a, a narrow lane and it sits behind this plaza. So you drive behind the plaza and you, at the end of it, uh, on the left is the drive-through window. Well, uh, I've never seen this before, but there was a car on the far right like space there in that little narrow lane, and so I had to stop. And I thought, yeah, it's not a big deal. I'm in this big white uh, Ford Transit. Nothing can stop me. I can get going again. No big deal. And uh, this guy walks out of his store, comes and gets in his car and says, sorry, and he leaves, and I can't move. I, I was totally stuck, and I, I didn't know how to, to get out of it. For the next about 30 minutes, um, I, I spent like going forward an inch and back an inch and forward an inch, back an inch. I was, I was really struggling. And actually, I don't really know how I ultimately got out of the predicament after I got in. I guess it was just grit and determination and, and the grace of God. But about 30 minutes after I got stuck, I pulled up to the driver's, uh, or the, excuse me, the drive through window, and unbeknownst to me, the workers had been watching me and cheering me on in their little shop, and um, uh, they gave me a free coffee, which was very nice of them for my troubles. But uh, as I was leaving there, I, th- I was thinking, how could I have been so cocky to think that I could brave what was happening out in the roads. Part of it is because it's been a while since that's happened for me. In fact, I don't really know if I could remember the last time I got stuck in snow or ice. But what you need to know about the story is this. Before I left, my wife Holly said, Brad, are you sure this is what you want to do? And of course, me being cocky, I said, no big deal. I'll be fine. I'll be home in like five minutes. It's right there. You know where Cafe Cubana is. Of course, I called her on the very beginning of this whole deal, and she, her heart went out to me. She was sad for me. She didn't say I told you so or any of that kind of stuff. But um, I really should have, when she asked me that question at the house, said, I really can't do this. I really shouldn't do this. What I thought was true, that I could make it in the snow and the slush, wasn't true. Many things in life that we think are true are not necessarily true. Some things that we believe to be true in our lives end up, they actually aren't true. They're they're not really based in reality. I think about this in in the Christian life as well. Um, A.W. Tozer um, great author and, 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 and thinker um, in his book uh, about God's holiness, um, he says this. He says, whatever comes to your minds when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What Tozer is saying is that what is true about God is what is the most important things that you can think about God. And if you're thinking about those things, you are going to then be able to, in turn, he says in this book, to worship God rightly. But if you don't believe what is true about God, you won't be able to worship God rightly because you're not believing what is true. When I left my house that day to go get coffee in the snow, my confession to 
Holly was, I'll be fine, and I wasn't. My, my confession was not based on the truth. It was not based in reality. For you and I as Christians, we need to ask ourselves, what do we believe about God? And is what we believe about God our confession? Is it, is it, um, does it say something that, that we really truly believe about God, and does it really affect who we are? Does it affect how we worship God? Or are there things about God that aren't really true but that we believe? What we believe about God matters. What we confess with our mouths about God matters. It's relative to the worship that you will have for God in your life. We are on the home stretch of a series called Incarnate where we are looking at passages of Scripture in the New Testament where we see these glimpses of this most amazing miracle of Jesus coming to earth God in the flesh to rescue sinners. And we've been making our way through a variety of these passages. We come to the second to last tonight. Christmas Eve will will be uh, the last. And we're looking today at one of um, of my favorites. Um, John 3.16 is probably the most famous chapter and verse that's 3.16 in the Bible. My second favorite probably is this one tonight. 1 Timothy 3.16. And what we're doing uh, in this series is really trying to understand um, this, this idea. Why did Jesus come? For what purpose did Jesus come? And why does that really matter for you and for me? And what impact does that really have for us as we celebrate Christmas again? If you're like me, you, you've been a believer for a, a while. Some of you may be a new Christian. Some of you may be just peeking over the fence at this Christianity thing here tonight. We're so glad that you're here. But what are the dangers for those of us who've known and walked with Jesus for many years is that we come to Christmas, and it, it, because it's so familiar to us, we uh, allow that familiarity to um, numb us from what the real like meaning of the Christmas season is all about. And our hope has been in this series that as we see these amazing glimpses of the, the incarnation, it's, it's caused us, it's, it's moved us to greater worship of Jesus so that we can enjoy Christmas for what it really is meant to be enjoyed for. So if you have your Bibles with you tonight, we're going to be walking our way through uh, 1 Timothy 3, uh, 16. And as we do that, really, I just want to invite you to see one thing tonight. One thing, and it's this. The true story of Jesus is our confession. The true story of Jesus is our confession. Look with me, if you would, beginning there in verse 16 of 1 Timothy. What we have here in this verse is what is commonly known as a hymn. Uh, in, in most translations of the Bible, the way that this verse is uh, 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 typed out on your page, you'll notice it looks different. And there's a reason why that's different. The reason why is because it's a, it's a hymn. You notice the, the parallels, the po- poetry in it, the, the, the flesh and the spirit, the nations and the world, uh, the, the, the human and, and the divine. And all of these things are pointing to this idea that this is actually something that probably would have been sung by the early Christians. 
Um, and, and what Timothy does for us, super helpful, is at the very beginning, before he jumps into this hymn, he gives us a grid for what we're supposed to see this hymn through, how we're supposed to see it. And it's there in verse 16. Uh, look at there. It says, this is the mystery of godliness. So what we're getting ready to look at in this hymn is the mystery of godliness. So let's just stop there for a moment. This is a pretty massive statement here. What is the mystery of godliness? Well, first, what is a mystery? A mystery is something that um, is hidden, right? But in the Bible, when you see the word mystery, many times what it means, most of the time what it means is, is something that was once hidden but now is revealed. And so, mystery of godliness, the mystery is something that was hidden but is now revealed. But what about this idea of godliness? When you and I hear the word godliness, many times what we think of, and this is right because the New Testament speaks of it this way, is how you and I should live, right? Godly lives. Godliness is a, a, a character trait that we, we uh, should live by. But actually, here we see a, a different uh, definition of what godliness means. Godliness here is, is, is meant to help us see this. It's, it's God-likeness. It is uh, deity revealed, right? So when you put this whole idea together, the mystery of godliness, we're talking about someone, Jesus, who was once hidden, now revealed in our time, in our space, the very God-likeness is now manifested in the culture of man. So in our passage, the mystery of godliness is not a what, it's a who, Right? Uh, he was manifest, it says. And maybe uh, your translation says he who was manifest, but that's right. The mystery of godliness that we're going to look at in our passage tonight is a who. It is Jesus. So, what is the content of the mystery of this godliness? Well, we have five. What is the essence of the deity that is revealed to us? Well, we have five statements. You actually see six lines, but in those six lines, there's five statements that give us the very essence of what the mystery of godliness is. And I just want to walk through those with you real quickly tonight as we see the, the mystery of godliness together. First, it says that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. And this is, again, the, the very definition of the incarnation. This is what we've been looking at over the last uh, few weeks in this series. The word manifest is a word that means visible. Uh, Jesus pre-existed but was not visible and in the incarnation, though, has now become visible. In John 17, if you remember the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, um, Jesus prays to the Father that he would return to him in glory the way in which he had been before the world had began. One has always existed. He is the uncreated one. But in becoming manifest, the invisible God becomes visible in human form in Jesus. This is the incarnation. And the beauty of this is that what we see in Jesus, as it says in Hebrews, is that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. So when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. 
when you look at the life of Jesus, the way in which he lived, who he was, you are seeing the very person uh, of God. Jesus was conceived supernaturally, yes, but he was born just like you and me from the womb of his mother. And throughout his whole life, his holiness was manifested, his godliness was revealed. There was this unveiling of divine holiness revealed in his life. If you remember at the end of his life, even a Roman centurion looked at him and said, surely this is the Son of God. So yes, even though Jesus pre-existed as God eternally with the Father, in the incarnation he comes into our world, and through this his deity is veiled. And he though is revealed to be God, and in his humility he dies the death that you and I should have died in humility. We see here first the incarnate Christ was manifested in the flesh. Now second, it says that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. Now vindicated is um, a word we don't use a whole lot, but it's, it's just another way of saying justified or to be made righteous or declared righteous. The definitive vindication in the life of Jesus is found in the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Timothy is talking about here. Romans 1 verse 4 says, He was declared the Son of God with power by the Holy Spirit from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. So the Holy Spirit, as we see in this line here, affirms the holy perfection of Jesus by empowering Him to be risen from the dead. And in the raising of Jesus, we see that Jesus is who he said he was. The Spirit vindicated Jesus as absolutely righteous. Now, that word declared there uh, is the word that we actually get our idea of the, of the word horizon. And, and a horizon is this clear boundary, right, that, that uh, separates one thing from another. It's a line of demarcation from one thing and another. And in this vindication of Jesus, the God through the power of the Spirit raises Jesus from the dead to declare that the power of sin is defeated. He raises Jesus from the dead to declare that Jesus is completely different from anyone else who's ever lived in the world or would ever live in the future. The spirits raising Jesus from the dead gives us irrefutable evidence to clearly mark out and distinguish the human life of Christ as the divine spirit who was hidden but now made visible. The incarnate Christ was vindicated by the spirit. Now third, it says that Jesus was seen by the angels. This is an interesting statement. It, it seems kind of vague, like where did the angels see Jesus? When did they see Jesus? Um, we know that, that, that uh, Jesus was attended to by angels through his, uh, his life. Um, so what are we talking about here? Well, most commentators believe that what Timothy is talking about here are really two things. First, though we see the angels attending to Jesus throughout his entire life, this is about the angels at the tomb. If you look at the light, you notice a, 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 a pattern here, but we really are beginning to look at the life of Jesus 
and, and we're moving from, from birth and, and, into uh, his, his life and his death, and now we are at his resurrection. We are seeing the story of Jesus play out here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about an angel who had a conversation with those who came to the tomb. John tells us that as they went inside the tomb, there were two angels, and one was sitting in the place where Jesus' feet had been, and one was sitting at the place where his head had been. And we see in those instances that while the disciples were struggling to believe, they seemed to have had no problem believing. They seemed to have had no problem believing that Jesus had actually rose from the dead. The angels are fascinated with Jesus. I think they were fascinated with his death and his resurrection. First Peter talks about the angels longing to look into the good news, which is another way of saying they, uh, they, they are longing to look into the gospel. And that really is the thing that leads us to the second thing, that uh, Timothy is talking about here, and we really, if we fast forward to Revelation 4 and 5, we see the worship of heaven. And who is in the heavenly throng worshiping God? It's the angels, right? The angels have no personal knowledge of redemption, but just like in 1 Peter that we just said, they are fascinated by longing to look into the gospel. They are worshiping God at the end of time and for eternity because they have watched the death and resurrection of Christ, and this has informed their worship and will inform their worship for eternity. The incarnate Christ was seen by the angels. Now, fourth, it says that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. What happened after Jesus' resurrection? Well, we know that he began to appear and reveal himself to his friends, his disciples, the apostles. He appeared to, um, at one point it says, appeared to uh, over 500 people at one time. And what did Jesus tell these people to do? He left them with uh, his mission in the world with them. He invited them in, joining him in the mission that he had in the world. And he said, go into all of creation and preach the gospel to every creature, right? those places that we can. And they did that. We know. We have a record of it. The book of Acts is one of those places that we can see the record of the way in which uh, the disciples and the early church took the gospel, and we, we see this explosive growth of Christianity and of the church. They went out and gave their lives for the gospel. You don't do that for a lie. You don't do that for a hoax. You don't get martyred because you think that the story might be true. They saw Jesus with their own eyes, believed that he had truly risen from the dead, and they accepted the call to join him in his great mission in the world to seek and save the lost. And if there was no resurrection, they wouldn't have done that. They would have not proclaimed the gospel among the nations. They would have gone away or they would have died with uh, an unbelievable amount of disappointment because they had put their hope in this, this guy who said... Um, that he was the hope of the world. The very fact that they went into all the world and proclaimed the gospel at whatever cost, it, uh, you know, whatever it cost them, is indication enough that they had seen the risen Christ. And again, friends, that same gospel is still being preached today. 
and it will continue to be preached until the end of time. There are people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation who are resting and trusting in Jesus because someone took hold of the call from Jesus to share the gospel with those who don't have it. They have believed on Jesus. That's what this line says. That is, they have believed in the truth of who Jesus is, what what has been shared with them about who Jesus is. And again, the amazing thing for you and I is that Jesus has invited us to join him in his great rescue mission in the world, to help others believe on and to believe in Jesus. The incarnate Christ was and is proclaimed among the nations and is being believed on. And then finally, fifth, it says that Jesus was taken up into glory. Again, you see the the progression here. This is the climax that began in the incarnation, and now we see, <clears throat> we see in the what? The ascension of Jesus. Substitution, resurrection, evangelization, salvation, and now we see ascension, glorification. In Acts 1, we see Jesus ascending back into heaven, back into glory, the same glory that he had had with the Father before the world began. He's returning back to that glory, and now he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 1 says that when Jesus had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why is that important? Because it means that God was pleased with the work of Jesus. God exalted him because his work was perfect. It was complete. And going back into, the, into heaven, the Father is basically, he's saying this, I highly exalt you, Jesus. I give you a name that is above every name, that at the name, that at your name every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that you are Lord to the glory of me, of God the Father, the incarnate Christ was taken up into glory. So here in six lines, you have the grand sweep from incarnation to glorification all the way from the coming of Jesus to his ascension into eternal glory. He is God in human flesh. His incarnate life confirms that. His resurrection by the Spirit of God confirms that. The experience of angels confirms that. The preaching of the apostles confirms it. The faith of believers confirms it because we put our trust by the power of God in that living Christ. And his final coronation and exaltation confirms it as he takes his place at the right hand of God and awaits the moment when he will come in glory to establish his earthly kingdom and then to reign forever and ever. This is a majestic verse. So why is this important for us? Well, here is the one thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. The true story of Jesus is your confession The true story of Jesus is our confession. And when I say our, our, uh, what I mean by that is this. It should be your confession. It should be our confession. It, it, It should be the church's confession. Let's think about what a confession is for a moment. 
Typically, when we think about a confession, we think about like a movie or, or a TV show where someone confesses to a crime, right? I, th- I think one of the most dramatic ones that, that I can remember is in the, in the movie a, F- a Few Good Men, whenever Colonel Jessup confesses that he ordered the code red, right? Um, in that moment, you're just not expecting him to actually come clean about this really bad thing uh, that he did. And yeah, that's dramatic. That is a confession. That's typically what we think of with, with a confession. But really, what you have when someone is confessing something is this. Even if that thing is not good, what you're confessing is something that is true about them. They are acknowledging what is accurate or correct about a situation or, or who they are. That person is declaring what is in accordance with reality. So a confession, good or bad, is to state what you really believe about yourself and about reality. Are you with me? If you look back at verse 14 there in 1 Timothy, you see that it says this. We didn't read this earlier, but it says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. A pillar and buttress, it says in the ESV, other translations say foundation or support of the truth. So the household of God is the church of God, right? It's it's who we are. If you're a partner here at Mercy View, you have joined your life with a local church. You are a part of a household of God. And Timothy is defining the church of the living God. Then he goes on, we are the pillar and support of the truth. And then he goes on to write what we just unpacked. And what is verse 16? Do you see the word confess there? Yeah. Verse 16 is the confession of the church. It's the confession of a Christian. It is the common confession of truth that identifies us as the true church, as a true Christian. It's what holds up the church. Uh, It's what holds up a Christian. It's what supports and gives shape to the church and to a Christian. It is the only thing that saves. It is the only thing that sanctifies. It is the only thing that edifies and empowers and gives promise of eternal life. And some translations like the NIV and the the King James even say this confession is without question. It is without controversy. That is to say this confession, verse 16 that Timothy has written here, it, it is settled. It is the confession for us. Now there is another chapter 3 and verse 16 in the Bible that sums up why God did this. It's probably the most well-known verse in all of the Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, the reason that Jesus was manifested The reason that he was vindicated, the reason that he is proclaimed, the reason why men and women and children continue to believe on him is because of this. It's because of God's love for you. When you look at 1 Timothy 3.16, I want you to remember John 3.16. Because what you see in the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is a gift to you. It's what Christmas is all about. It's the greatest gift that you can receive. 
A.W. Tozer goes on to say in, in, in his book that worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. We said earlier that the most important thing about you is what you think about God, whatever comes to your minds. And if we join that with what we just heard Tozer say, here's what we need to remember as we close this evening. Our worship of Jesus, the God-man, is relative to our thoughts about Him. This Christmas, I want to plead with you and encourage you, let's let the confession of verse 16 of 1 Timothy 3 be our thoughts of Jesus, God in the flesh, And may our worship reflect the amazing gift of God in Jesus because the true story of Jesus is our confession. Amen?